Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. How's this for stating the obvious? Making it onto Forbes Magazine's prestigious 30 Under 30 list is one hell of a big deal. And one of those featured on the 2020 list is the very talented, accomplished actress, Eva Noble Zeta, my guest today. Let's go back. When Eva was just 17, she was one of the finalists for the National High School Music Theater Awards. In spring 2014, she left school to star in the London production of Miss Saigon, a role she later reprised in the Broadway revival in 2017, and for which she earned a Tony nomination for Best Actress in a Musical. Variety called her Broadway debut performance entrancing. The prior year, Eva played Eponime in the West End production of Les Miserables and also made her Carnegie Hall debut, performing The Movie in My Mind with Leah Salonga and the New York Pops. In 2018, Eva was cast in the lead role of Eurydice in the Royal National Theatre's production of the musical Town, and she continued in that role when the show moved to Broadway in 2019. That's also when Eva received her second Tony nomination. She did pick up a Broadway.com Audience Choice Award for Favorite Leading Actress in a Musical. And the Town cast won the 2020 Grammy for Best Musical Theater Album. Eva's list of credits now includes the big screen, Yellow Rose, marks her feature film debut. It tells the story of a Filipino teenager in Texas who's determined to pursue her dreams of becoming a country music star, but struggles with leaving her family in the only home she's ever really known. A lot of ground to cover, so let's meet and get to know the very gifted and talented Eva Nobazeta. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thanks for having me remotely. (laughs) So I always ask this question of actresses. When you were growing up, were you putting on plays and musicals in the barn in the back of your house? Absolutely. I, in fact, once attempted to make a stage with uh, extra plywood that I found in my grandpa's garage. I don't know why he let me play with nails and hammers, but it's a Filipino thing. They just trust their kids with (laughs) dangerous tools. So you were what? The actress, the director, the writer? Oh, everything. everything. I also was charging tickets. I was like, it's $5 (laughs) to see this show. Seriously? $5. Do you have takers? Um, I don't actually remember that. I just remember that I was telling my cousins, everyone needs to pay. Everyone needs to buy a ticket. Oh, put the, make sure you put the lawn chairs out three, <laughs> three in each row so that it, they see the stage. I remember I was, so, I was very young and bossy. <laughs> and you, so you were a solo act. You didn't need anybody else on stage with you. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? San Diego, California. Oh, so that's, you know, a very outdoorsy kind of place to perform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you were obviously encouraged by your parents. Totally. Because they saw in you something as opposed to just chutzpah? Yeah, I think they just were, they were so young. My mom had me when she was like 18. So I think that because they were young and, and like hungry to, you know, to live themselves, they just saw me constantly singing and constantly being a little drama queen and they just were completely supportive of that, which honestly is a very rare thing to have two parents who are supportive of their firstborn child pursuing a career uh, in the arts. So I was very lucky and blessed to have parents like that. But more than having their support is you've got to have talent. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So how did we know about that? How did you know? How did they know? 
that there was something there to mine? I think when the talent stems from a dream of just pursuing a career that constantly sparks joy, uh, it's less about the technicality. And I think my parents and I realized that at a young age, I had so much joy doing it. So for me, it was an obvious choice of like, that's my dream for when I'm an adult to continue to do something that makes me so happy. And they also agreed with that. So, and it just helped that the universe blessed me with a voice and I don't know. I, I don't know if I ever really, I don't know if I ever really said, yes, you're right, Eva, you are talented. I just kind of went with it and went with my, what my heart was kind of telling me to do. You obviously had talent because look where you went to high school. You didn't go to just a regular old high school. Yeah, well, there was, there was a performing arts high school, um, which was great. It was very, very underfunded, but it was like brimming with talent uh, from kids of all backgrounds and shapes and sizes and just attitudes. And it was the most beautiful rainbow of a school. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. Everybody there was a unicorn. So I'm grateful <laughs> to have been in a, in a community with young kids who were hungry to learn and hungry to perform. That was awesome. Well, clearly your talent was also acknowledged and fostered. That must have been some hell of a time when you just left school and you found yourself in London in Saigon. That's crazy. You were what, 17? 17. That's nuts, right? It was nuts. Uh, I don't wish on anybody. I was definitely not prepared and I was very naive and excited, but that's always kind of the best way to learn. You got to soak up everything like a sponge, even if it's dirt as well. Um, there were definitely crappy times, but yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. Um, which is, yeah, it's cool to know that I did that. It feels like 50 years ago. But I, I can't let go of the fact that you were young and you did this, no pun intended, solo. You just went to London on your own and your parents were okay with that. Yeah. My parents and I have a very trusting relationship with each other in that I was such an, an a-hole teenager. I was so like, I'm me, like, stop trying to tell me who I am. And I think after all of the door slamming and all of the loud music and the tears over dinner uh, arguments, I think they finally realized, you know, like, there's no changing her, her mind. There's no like telling her what to do. She has to figure it out for herself and Mm -hmm. fall and scrape her knee and scrape Mm -hmm. her spirit and then get back up. And um, thankful that my parents also had that like spiritual religious background too, to know that it, not everything was in their control. So they had a lot of leeway to like, let me go and do my thing. If that makes any sense. So there was a trust even despite your age. Totally, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Was there somebody watching out for you when you made it to London? Uh, No. You were completely on your own. Yeah. Literally living by myself. The only person looking back who was genuinely looking out for me was the company manager. Her name's Katie Bryant. And she will always be one of my biggest loves. I love her very much. Um, she was always looking out for me in, in the sense that's like, how are you? No, actually, how are you doing? I've been, I've been, are you okay? That kind of person who also was just like letting me under, like whenever I had a chance to complain or cry, she'd be like, it's okay. You can do that. Wow. You can do that. So she was the only person who really was sick, uh, looking out for me. Another thread that ties all these women together who I've interviewed is this, again, I use this over and over, but it's so true, this very strong sense of self. And not for nothing, to have that at 17 is pretty freaking amazing. 
I didn't know who I was, but I know what I could do. I know what I had to offer. And I think the biggest lesson I learned at 17 was realizing that that has nothing to do with who I am at uh-huh. all. Uh, uh-huh. And so there was a lot of, I would say from 2017 to 2000, no, sorry, 2014 to 2017 were some of the hardest years of self-discovery. And then it got harder and then it got a lot better. Uh, I learned like all of the years of hardships of life, like including college and like starting to get a job and like realizing that like what you got your degree in it does not like guarantee you work or guarantee you happiness. I learned all of that in a concentrated um, period of time whilst doing eight shows a week and trying to grow up. So it was always a given that you would go on to higher education in spite of the fact that you were working at such a young age? Oh, no, I never wanted to go to college. I never wanted to go to, I was just saying the college was, life was my college. Ah, um, ah, yeah, uh-huh. I never wanted to go to college. I still never want to go to college. I had a conversation with somebody randomly before quarantine. They were like, but when are you going to go back to study? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And they're like, well, you don't have a, a college degree. That's very important in this world. And I was like, F you. Like, yeah, sure, sure. How dare you? No, but I, I just, I never wanted to put my parents in debt for something that I knew I didn't need. I know that sounds really like no, cocky, no, but no, I, it just sounds refreshingly honest. Yeah, that's, that's really what I felt. But college is definitely for some people. I'm, I hey, of that. course, it's quite an institution. Yeah. Um, but when the run of Miss Saigon in London was over and you were coming back to the States, did you know what you were coming back to? Was something lined up for you or you were yeah, going to go well, back to California and figure it out? Well, no, I lived in London for about four years. I did Miss Saigon for two and a half years and uh, Les Mis for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, the reason I came back to New York was to do the Miss Saigon revival. So I, and- I never went back home I, because my parents, when we were six, when I was six, we, we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, which um, I'm very open in saying that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like it all. So I never wanted to go. I only went back to visit every once in a while, but I never went back to stay for more than a week. I'm also struck by the fact that you don't, that you march to your own drummer. Again, no pun intended, that you don't (laughs) need crowds around you, that you have this, I know what I need, I know what I want, and you go Mm. for it. Yes. I just feel like life's too short and also life's too long, if that makes sense. You got to just, if you know, you know. Kind of carpe diem, you mean, in a way? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I just, I went through so much as a, as a young girl and I was really beaten down. And it, the only person who could get me up and dust myself off was myself. What do you mean you were beaten down? Well, the second I moved to London, the creatives of Miss Saigon pretty much said, you're too fat. You're kind of ugly. Take these pills, take the pill, go see a personal trainer five times a week. We're going to deliver meals to your door. And my eating disorder skyrocketed. I mean, I had a, a little bit in high school, but it's making myself sick like 20 times a day. Um, on opening night, they put me on steroids because my voice was so shocked from the bile and the, and the my stomach acid. So, and it was trauma. It, you, and it's like, That's appalling. That is yeah, completely yeah. and totally appalling. I have no bitterness because I understand that they thought, oh, she's so mature for her age. She can handle it. Um. So I, that's why I was grateful for Katie Bryant. She was the only one really who saw what was happening and was sticking up for me. Um, before I knew how to say no, she was saying no for me. So I'll be forever grateful for that. She was my guardian angel for sure. But yeah, I would say I went through that a lot. And then also like finding out who I was and realizing that I didn't at all, all know who the hell I, I was. <laughs> I yeah. was like, You're li- I live, I'm living my life as a fraud who has an eating disorder. 
Um, oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was difficult. So, you know, I, I'm open with talking about that because it's something that uh, institutions that teach musical theater, they don't talk to you about that at all. They don't talk to you about actually the, um, the spiritual and emotional and psychological demands that this industry will, will ask of you and that you have the option to say, no, go ask yourself. It's so abusive. And even though I have been around the block, to hear you rattle this stuff off is just positively shocking, appalling, and so fucking wrong. It is fucking wrong. I'm grateful to have the people in my life that I have, or else I wouldn't have not made uh, the progress and strides. Because if I were to meet myself now at 17, you know, everyone's always like, what piece of advice would give your younger self? I would say nothing because I needed to go through that. I must have needed to go through that to be who I am today. Um, I would just probably give her a hug and be like, stop doing that style to your eyebrows. Please stop. Mm-hmm. That's probably mm-hmm. the only thing I would say. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was, it was not nice, but I learned a lot. It was a very enriching experience through trauma. I bet it was on some level incredibly eye-opening. When you came to New York after playing abroad and you were in Les Mis and then also in Town after coming back from doing that overseas. Did you feel kind of like you died and went to heaven in terms of being in New York? Uh, (laughs) uh, I love New York. Doing theater in New York, however, is a different life. You don't Mm -hmm. get to experience New York. You don't get to have a personal life because you wake up and your whole day and existence is dedicated to making sure that you can do eight shows a week. So Town here and even Miss Saigon here was just incredibly, it's just too much for a small young woman. It's just too much. Um, and I realize that now, and this quarantine has been my first actual break since 2014. Whoa. So, Whoa. And, I, and I know people are like, but you've had holidays. It's like, yeah, you have holidays. You can't do all the things you want to do because you have to make sure that you're still ready to go at the second. No, it's a grind. Back. It's a grind. Yeah. It may be a rewarding grind. Yeah. But it's it, but it's a, gr- a grind nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I'm very grateful. I love Broadway. I love musical theater um, as an extension of myself. I think the hardest thing was like detaching it, and I needed to stop like uh, defining who I was as a young woman because of the things I had done. Because honestly, if I looked at them, I go, they're amazing, but they're in no way a comparison to who I am as a woman. And that was what I needed to figure out. And what does that mean as to who you are as a woman? I always tell my students, there's no point wasting your time trying to perfect, you know, you're just because you're a triple threat, it doesn't mean you're going to get a job. Just because you have an amazing voice doesn't mean you're going to get a job. And your sole existence should not depend on that. When I wake up in the morning, I'm even a bozada. I'm a woman. I'm half Mexican, half Filipino. I listen to what I want to do and I do what I want to do and I eat what I want to eat. I don't wake up and I go, I'm even a bozada, the actress. Look at the things that I've done. Being an actress is an extension of who I am. So if I don't feed the trunk of the tree, which is my, myself, then everything else is just going to be sick. The root's not taken care of. Everything else will just be sick. Wow, there's a lot of wisdom in, forgive the patronizing remark, in somebody no, that's your not, age, I, I really you're young. That. And I hate, I hate focusing on that, but I think that that should be really acknowledged. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. Well, it's also just very true. I'm not a kind person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I say the same thing. <laughs> what do you teach? I've been teaching lots of private classes and master classes. In, in quarantine, acting through song and singing technique and mainly acting. That's what, it's been very refreshing to teach, do that. Just have 
hungry students just like be like, I want to work on this monologue, but I don't know how to shake out of what my brain's telling me. So part of my teaching is, is I always say, I'm not telling you you're doing anything wrong. I'm trying to like take out all the yumminess and the goodness, mm-hmm. the goodies mm-hmm. that you have. It, sometimes it takes another voice to dust it off and say, hey, a reminder that you have this, mm-hmm. so let's use this. Because um, a lot of teaching nowadays is, no, that's horrible, do it again. You can reference some of your uh, own experiences <laughs> from the past. Have you ever thought about having just a musical career, being out there as a singer? Oh, absolutely. I find so much more joy doing my own cabaret and choosing my own songs and being able to write a storyline of the show that I want to do. I mean, my, my cabaret in New York have been extremely successful since I started doing them in 2017. And I'm very grateful to have had the spaces, Green Room 42 here in New York, that kind of catered to my dates and to... um what I wanted to do. And yeah, it's gotten to the point now where I'm like ready to write like full on shows where there's like lighting and sound bites and a, maybe a band. Um, so I'm been grateful to do that. That makes me so happy singing. What's music. your musical genre favorite? Ooh, jazz blues, a little bit of pop, but all, only a ballad. I'm a, I'm a, I'm in a very much in the style of a, Amy Winehouse mm. meets Nora Jones meets mm. Ella Fitzgerald. I love a blue light and a stool and a wow. glass of gin when I do wow. my show. That is honestly the, the ambiance of my shows. Have you uh, recorded any albums? No, but it's difficult. I've, I always tell people I'm working on it, which I am, but like I have no deadlines. So sometimes if I'm not inspired to write, right. I just don't write. Right. Um, it's just hard to find the right people who get my vibe. And also, like, I can't meet anybody now. I'm, I'm, like, stuck at home. So it's kind of like I don't really mind not putting it out right now. But um, And this is not going to last forever. Hmm. That is very true. I know I agree with that. I I keep saying that. Yeah, we have to say that. We certainly have to say that. So let's move into the big screen. How did that come about? And was that something that you always aspired to do? Make movies? Yeah, I always wanted to to do films. Diane, our wonderful director, came and saw Miss Saigon here in New York and then reached out to my, my management team and we set up a meeting and she handed me the script and said, you're Rose. And I said, okay. What was it about the film that enticed you, lured you? I think the biggest thing for me was going, wait a second, the, the lead who's on every page is a, you're highlighting the fact that she's a young Filipino living in Texas. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, for me, I was like, I had never had representation like that before, ever. Huh. So for me, I was like, I have to be a part of that. I, I have to be a part of that. And, you know, people are like, but you didn't miss that gone. Like, you know, Miss Saigon is a very controversial and absolutely problematic show. And you, she's not a young Filipino. She's a young Vietnamese woman. I'm not Vietnamese. So to be able to finally represent truly in a storyline that represents the dark side of that as well, being a young Filipino American, that was incredible that she was trusting me with that huge responsibility because that was also Diane. Diane wrote this movie in accordance to her childhood as well. So I was like, I have to be a part of this. I have to be a part of this. Tell everybody her last name. Paragas. Personalize that for you. Was that a really tough thing being somebody mixed race? No, I mean, I'm still mixed and I, I love, I fucking love who I am and and, you know, where I come from, and I love that I had enriching culture 
ex- cultured experiences from both sides of my family, I feel very much down the line. I always I say, call myself Mexicasian <laughs> down the line. And I, I love it. However, sometimes, actually a lot of the times in this industry, literally the great white way, mm. um, you just come across a lot of ignorance. You come across a lot of um, patronizing, eh, just ignorant conversations and comments. And I've learned to really enjoy them and not then realize that, oh, they're not, they're not personally attacking me. They're just speaking out of not knowing something. Well, the risk of getting getting political, some of that has just been fostered (laughs) quite strongly these days or these last couple of years. It's been fostered and ever since 45 has sat wherever he sits in the White House, it's been validated racial prejudice. So I don't, I am absolutely, I'm absolutely down to have conversations like that. Just to understand, because I feel like people get so upset as they should. And so the, the best way to have conversations is to truly just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes to just be like, hey, what you said just then, guess what? That was very offensive. Right, right. Do you think that this film will spark a lot of conversation? Ooh, yeah. I hope Yellow Rose does. I hope that people understand and are, are aware that we're not trying to put Yellow Rose out in a fashion that's just like, if you don't get this story, you're blank. Or if you have these political ideals, this movie is not for you. This movie is a human story. There is no politics in this movie. This is simply a story about disappointingly true time of young, undocumented immigrant children people that are in this country. And since this current administration pulled the plug on DACA, there are so many now, tens of thousands of, of, of applicants who are just like, what the hell do I do now? So this, the point of this movie for me is two things, is to spread awareness truly of the, of the immigration situation that's going on in this country, because a lot of it's being swept under the rug. And a lot of people say, I agree with immigration policy, but they're not actually looking at what they're agreeing to when it comes to the inhumane treatment that these people are getting, the children in cages. Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. keep saying that. And it's like, why do we have to keep saying that? Like a soundbite, there are actual children in cages who are right, dying right. because they're not getting medical attention and they're separated from their parents and the stress is causing their bodies to shut down and same with the parents. So spreading awareness of that, spreading awareness also of what you can do locally. Perhaps if somebody watches in Texas and goes, wow, this might be happening down the street for me. What can I do to make sure that people know that I'm an ally to make sure that people feel safe when they're around me? Or what can I do? What can I donate a few bucks to my local organization that helps take, you know, like there's things that we can still do. Choose a lane in this revolution because there's always a lane for everybody. And then the second thing is uh, hopefully to inspire young people of color and say, if you relate to anybody in this movie that, We've made this for you. That's how I kind of feel too. So the character and the situation was more than relatable to you. Absolutely. My parents left San Diego, California, this beautiful, and I remember as a child, it was like always sunny, like del sol, like the sun. Like we loved, I loved the beach. I loved being a um, five minute walk from my grandparents to my other grandparents. So I had such an enriched life of who I was. And then I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Why did you move? Because we, we lived in a, a, not a very safe neighborhood at all. My parents just had the opportunity. They were young. They had a, had a new baby. And they were like, let's start our life. 
So I'm glad they did. That was a great decision for them. A huge decision for them. It must have required a lot of strength and, and thinking through. But growing up in Charlotte, I was the only Asian person I knew except for my cousins. And we, we, we rarely saw them. So it was like this like family that everyone was like, what are you living in this very white, like HOA neighborhood, like where Mm -hmm. the grass needs to be like one and a half inches. You know, I stalled when it came to self-identity because everyone was like, but you're American. And for a while I was like, am I like, what the hell am I? Uh, It was just a very interesting time of a lot of, I mean, my childhood friend growing up in North Carolina used to call me Ping Ping because she said that I looked like Mulan. Thought that was funny at first, but now looking back, I go, yeah, yeah. The ignorance. No, that's um, so not funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ignorance of that. Um, and the ignorance, not the ignorance, but the lack of self-awareness that let me to go, allowed me to say, oh, that's funny. Haha, <laughs> keep doing that. What did your parents impart to you? My parents absolutely did struggle. My, my dad would take me sometimes to his classes in college. My mom, like nothing that they did in their lives continued because they had me. So the weight of realizing I can't finish college right now. I have to take care of my child. I have to take on two jobs. I have to, you know, how are we going to pay the bills? And I watched my family. We moved from house to house before we got into this big, beautiful house. My parents worked for literally a decade in North Carolina, juggling jobs and doing the best they could to get the house we ended up living in. But we were, there was a time where the, our family of four, when my sister was born, was living in a, one, in a, in a bedroom in my cousin's home for like a year. Wow. And then we, we moved into a small um, apartment where I was sharing a bedroom with um, my sister and it was just, it was tiny. And I remember there, you know, there was a, obviously lots of familial stress. I watched my parents like stress constantly, but you know what? There was always food on the table. There was always an abundance of love and support for my parents. And to me, I, you know, I have no right to ever complain in my life. So I'm gr- grateful that they installed work ethic in me. For sure. I'm very proud of my parents for what they've done. Wow. Wow. The child is the father of the man. Have you ever heard of that expression? It applies to you in spades, for sure. Whoa. Can you say that one more time? Yes. The child is the father of the man. I love that. Isn't that a great line? Did you find, in terms of what was happening to you theatrically, that it was a great escape? Yes and no. I think the idea of great escape is... uh, condemning like it's if you're always looking for transcendence maybe let's use that word yeah because if you're always looking for escape then you're always you're always going to be trapped kind of Mm -hmm. like you're Mm -hmm. always trying to fight for the the social uh, norm for an ideal body type then you're never going to be truly happy I think performance is an escape and I, I mean that in the sense of the second I'm on stage and doing the art that is my escape right that is absolutely what people work you know hours to achieve. And I love, I love putting in the work. Mm -hmm. Um, But being in theater is sometimes excruciatingly hard to breathe because it feels tiny for me, at least because I do these massive shows and the characters uh, brilliant. And we work really hard with the director to like make it perfect. And then you just, you go back to work the next night and you do the same thing. So that must've been quite a, a shock in a sense for you to be in a movie? Shock, yes, but also essential in my career because I learned how to act via movies. Ah, Watching uh them, 
I would watch uh-huh. them. I'd write them down in my in spiral notebook, the script down hand by hand, play, listen, pause, write the script down. I mm-hmm. studied the scripts to my favorite films and I would do them at, like perform them in the mirror or like write my own monologues, <clears throat> record myself on my laptop and watch back. I was very, at a young age, um, dedicated to perfecting my craft, working on what I knew I could work on with the resources I had because we did not have money to do classes or anything. So So um, it's interesting that your film debut is Yellow Rose. There's a word in Yiddish, it's called beshert, and it means meant to be. Totally. Yeah, so Yellow Rose, it was like, this is a no-brainer. A no-brainer. I waited as long as I did. Yeah, I think it was definitely a gift from the, you know, conspiring higher powers to be like, you've done theater for so long. This is kind of your gateway one into the category of film that you always wanted to do, which is independent films. I love it. I just could live. I live there for the rest of my life, hopefully knock on wood. Um, but also a, a gateway into like, this is your new chapter of what you can do, who you are, and always remembering that you're not trying to achieve milestones. You're in a constant cycle. That was it. Was amazing to me. That was what the, this movie experience taught me as a young woman. Where did you shoot, by the way? We shot a lot of it in uh, Austin. Oh, everything in Austin, actually. But there were a few days where we went to Bastrop. That's where the motel is the, the, that she lives in with her mom. Um, other than that, there were some like weird like relocations where we would literally be in the van. Diane would say, "Get out and walk." August, there are cinematographers going to shoot you. Walk like. I don't know Austin. I, this is my first time. That my first time going there, so I didn't really know where we were half the time. But um, it was mainly in Austin. But shooting it was amazing. I mean, it was an incredible experience to just like live there in a city I'd never been to by myself again. It was like experiencing that again, but with less pressure. Yellow Rose felt like a lot less pressure to me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It was just very freeing and fun. Like Austin's amazing. I'd love to go back and yeah, it's a great city for, considering the state that it's in. Yeah, my Uber driver said it's a it's a blueberry and a strawberry pie. Perfect. That's a perfect description. <laughs> what has that been like for you, having a film under your belt? It's cool. I I don't know if it's hit me in a way that people are expecting it to like hit them um, or hit me. But I'm just proud of the work we've done. Like we did a feature in 18 days. Like to me, that's like that's nuts. Yeah. We oh, shot that's wild. Uh huh. Crazy. There is a there was one 18 hour day. Yeah, big deal. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the heck? But I loved it. I was like having so much fun. Um, I'm very proud. I'm I'm very proud of the work I did. I'm proud of the work ethic I instilled in myself. I mean, I was going to the gym every day in the morning and then before I went to bed just to make sure that I felt good. I mean, it's not like it shows on screen, but I'm I have body issues, so I was like, the fact that I was doing that on top of filming, on top of not drinking, on top of eating a strict diet, on top of like finding joy wow. in my life. I don't know. I was just, that's a, a time in my life that sometimes I go, I kind of want to get back there again, but I don't, I never want to look back, but mm-hmm. I'm very proud of, very proud of myself. You knew it had to be you because you felt that it was your story on so many different levels. Yeah. I felt that it was my story, but I also felt like it was every, a lot of people's stories. Um, that, the, that the movie like Yellow Rose is a public service. Yes. That's a beautiful way to put it. And I also like being half Mexican and Filipina, like representing two of the largest groups of undocumented peoples in the United States. 
like that was a lot of responsibility in a way that was like, Hey, just a reminder of that. You are way more privileged than everybody else. That was a big thing as well. But yeah, I would say like Diane just made the, the environment for filming so encouraging and supported, but like everyone wanted to do a good job and they enjoyed it, even though it was a stretch. How'd they find you? But, uh, she came and saw Miss Saigon, the ah, revival. And, and then, then for her, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, I guess, which very lucky for. So Eva, what do you want to do that you haven't done? One of my dreams has always been recording an album and listening to it back on vinyl. It's always been a dream of mine. <laughs> the day that happens will be awesome. I also, I think it's less of what I want to do and who I want to be. That's like the hardest thing for me is like, I don't like making strides in my career and like sitting down and working my ass off. It's freaking easy. It's easy for me to work and to get work and to get a paycheck. And it's just a reminder of how privileged and blessed I am to have that option. Well, you're also talented. Well, I have a lot of issues with confidence and a lot of issues with self-sabotage and a lot of issues with, um, I have a lot of issues. <laughs> let's, be, let's, be, let's be real. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, and I, but I'm, I'm constantly aware of them and I'm constantly finding tools and, and resources to, to not battle them. That's too aggressive but to balance them. And at a young age, like I always make, I made the joke in my cabaret and everyone laughed. I was like, I'm a two-time Tony nominee, loser, alcoholic, divorcee. Hi, I'm Eva Lozada. I'm 24 <laughs> years old. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't want to be anybody else and I wouldn't want to have any other struggles. So I think my biggest thing is who I want to be is somebody who can acknowledge that and walk, continue to walk away from the problems with power and peace. That's what I'd like to be. Because you're so honest and open and you just say what you say. Yeah, I wish people, more people felt um, encouraged to do that. And I have, a, I have a podcast called The Amarillo Project on Apple Podcasts and Spotify where it's essentially just talking about all that I'm talking to you about. I made that in order to understanding that I'm put on this earth for, for not just one mission, but many missions. And one of the big ones that I'm inspired about is talking about normal shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and even mm-hmm. even sometimes people say it's normal to talk about um, taboo things. It's like it's not a taboo thing. It's you wake up with your brain. It's there all day. And guess what? The you teach your brain a lot of crap, mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. have to deal with that. So why why are we not talking about it? The more we can talk about it, the more we can become aware. The more we can make space for things that override that. Over you know. So I just have a lot of. Um, I have a lot to say, and I love to have conversations with people like yourself that just are open and authentic, and that is literally why I made the podcast, is so mm-hmm. that when people are doing laundry in the room or feeling like they're trapped, they can listen to me and a friend talk about relationships or listen to me and my friend talk about body image while having a drink and having a laugh and realizing that there are people out there who are struggling every day, right? but they're doing the best they can, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. more than enough. I will say this to you that Tracy McMillan, who I love, says this amazing quote on one of her YouTube videos, uh, interviews. And somebody says, well, how do, you, how do you control everything in your life? And she goes, well, I can't control everything in my life, but I can control this. And she draws a little circle around her body and she goes, and that is everything. Well, I love that. Shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that shit. Wow. Yeah. That should be needle pointed. I somewhere. think so. I need, wow. yeah, I need to write that down in quote or and make a t-shirt or something or a hoodie. So cool. 
It's also a great way to end because it's very empowering. You've had an interesting road to hoe and you've learned a lot and Mm. you're not above taking your clothes off and talking about that, which is incredibly refreshing. Totally. Everybody feels on some level, I'm sure that they have an image to protect. Oh my God, of course. I, I feel like that in a sense of quite physically, that's why I see as a therapist is because I was, the second I was most raw and vulnerable in my life when I moved to London, somebody said, everything's fine except your actual physical image. That's incredible. So I'm still, I'm still dealing with that. You know, I'm still dealing with the repercussions of that. That sticks forever. I'm so grateful to have the people in my life and the partner I have. Sometimes I have to take a step back. And like you said, people have image issues. And I think the whole, my whole purpose is to remind them that, look, in, in the Bible, and I'm not religious, so to say, but I think we all know deep, 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 deep down that we are made in the image of a God, of a bigger, of a bigger, beautiful, bountiful, utopia kind of ideal. And just look at the universe. If that's the image that you're, that we're made from, sometimes it's a great reminder that to go, okay, well, my problem today, I'm, I'm going to let it bother me for two minutes and then I'm going to, I'm going to let it go. I don't know. I just, People are so um, quick to judge. And I think the people who are wounded, I'll say this, everyone's wounded. Everyone's wounded, especially the people who judge. So my job on this earth is to not only live the shit out of my life and love my life extremely hard and the people around me extremely hard, but to, to do that, to inspire others to also do the same thing. Well, what a great way to end. What a class act, Eva. No you bravado. too. I really, this was probably been my favorite interview thus far. Oh man. How much do I owe you? <laughs> <laughs> A jit on the rocks. <laughs> oh, there you go. It was totally my pleasure. I hope that we hear from you again. And that once this nightmare ends, that you're out <laughs> there singing on a stool with a blue light and a glass in your hand, doing oh, some amen. cabaret work. And I would assume you'd like to make more movies. Absolutely. I want to live in the indie film world. Eva, much more continued success. Thank you so much for today. Totally my pleasure. Make sure everybody gets out there to see Yellow Rose. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <music>